You're listening to The Comedy Cellar, live from the table, on the Riotcast Network, riotcast.com. Hey, good evening, everybody. Welcome to The Comedy Cellar Show here on Sirius XM Channel 99. Uh, we're here at the back table of The Comedy Cellar. My name is Noam Dwarman. I'm the owner of The Comedy Cellar. Uh, my partner, Dan Natterman, is not here tonight. But in his stead, I have uh, Emmy Award winner, Mr. Why are you laughing? You are Emmy Award winner, Mr. Paul Mercurio. Hello. Uh, uh, becoming a regular guest on the show, uh, comedian Andrew Schultz. And then uh, as a special guest, we have uh, a man who I met a few years ago who, and I don't say this lightly, I, th- I think has written one of the most important books maybe ever written. <laughs> I, 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 I kid you go. not. I mean, it, I, I have bought this book over and over for people. I've referred to this book. I see this book referred to in all sorts of places and all sorts of contexts. I don't know if you have a way to have a Google alert every time somebody cites your book, but uh, his name is Jonathan Haidt, and he wrote the book, The, the Righteous Mind. I want to get the subtext. Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. And you wrote this book like... Four or five years ago, right? Yeah, it came out in 2012 when things seemed so dire and we were so polarized. It, it couldn't looked get like it was worse. Be, right? It couldn't get worse. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> couldn't get worse. Yeah. So, uh, you, you, so why uh, you're reading it now, right? I am. Yeah. So my my thank you. You gave it to me. I appreciate a, it. As I read it, I haven't read it in, in years. You and, gave it to me like it was drugs. And I know yeah, it is. And I noticed. Uh, I I tried to look some notes that I'd taken years ago, but uh, and I noticed that everything, so many things had faded in my mind about the details of the book, except the one key point, which is that this man has proven uh, scientifically that all of us, or virtually all of us, no matter how much we guard against it, no matter how much we think otherwise, we decide first and then rationalize backwards as to uh, and thinking that we're actually going forward. Is that, is that correct? Yep, you, you wanna, got it. Want to explain it to us a little bit? <clears throat> sure. So um, humans have this big brain, and uh, what do we use it for? Uh, well, we use it for language. What do we use language for? Do we use it to figure out things? Um, sometimes. But when we're talking with each other, when we're arguing with each other, when we're relating to each other, we're really trying to kind of press our case. We're trying to look good. We're always guarding our reputation. Mm. And uh, there's a, a general uh, thing called the confirmation bias, a very powerful principle. Um, our minds Paul's judge... Paul's an expert in that, but go ahead, go ahead. Confirmation bias. <laughs> so our, our minds judge instantly. If you see somebody, uh, you, know, you, you like them or don't like them right away. Uh, and then you make up reasons afterwards. And boy, does that happen in our political life or when it's my group against your group. There's this uh, Charlie Sykes, the conservative talk show uh, host, has this theory. You know, cons- he says conservatism isn't populism, right? So like this, this whole divide has started quite a while ago because of this idea of populism or nativism, mm-hmm. which is that sort of we become tribal, right? So then really, rather than really caring about information from both sides of the argument and then making your own decision, people are more comfortable just going to the group and sticking with the group, regardless of what direction the group is going, which explains, for some people, the Trump phenomenon, right? Mm -hmm. Which to me sort of ties into what you're talking about, sort of the division. Division comes in because, in some way, people are more comfortable being in their tribe and not walking away from their tribe under any circumstances, which is kind of what we're seeing with Trump a little bit, I think. Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, if you look at if you look at kids, beginning in junior high especially, we're just really good at forming groups, and we feel uncomfortable when we're out of our groups. Yeah. And that's the basis of our political life. And a lot of European countries have lots of different parties, and so there there can be shifting around. There's all kinds of shifting. But there's something about the human mind that's really good at doing us versus them. In fact, I just saw a scientific study uh, yesterday that showed that when you, when you have people play a game where there are three groups. They don't get all tribal, but if they make it two groups, it's just they just switch really? right into that us versus them mindset. Mm. Unfortunately, now, we have two parties. We have, and there's no way out of it. I wanted to ask you a couple questions that I that I, I think about you all the time, and every time I send you an email, no, I, ho- I hope I don't, I don't wear it out wear out your email address. I hope they're worthwhile emails. But I, there's something that I said. What would I wonder what what Hyde thinks about this? But before I I ask the question, I just want to make an observation that I think might have something to do with it. I noticed that you also have gravitated to other subjects which interest me, and I've met you there in other places. For instance, you're very big into writing and exposing political correctness, campus speech Mm -hmm. codes, and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, that's been a big issue of mine also. You also, this really got me, there's this 
I think I sent it to you, this um, Brookings Institute study on poverty that I sent you, I think. Mm-hmm. I had no idea. He was the, what was your title? I was the chairman of that, or the moderator, rather. He was the moderator of that Give study. Give some background to the study for everybody who doesn't know. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I, I was always on the left growing up. And, and in fact, I started working on this book, The Righteous Mind, in order to help the Democrats win. I was just so fed up that Al Gore and then John Kerry couldn't put together good moral arguments to convince people to vote for the Democrats. So I started writing this book, and I committed myself to really understanding conservatives. And um, you so traveled I like, to India. That was a part of your. That was before him. That was, that was, that was, that was yeah. Part, that was my. That informed your thought about it, though, <clears throat> right? Yeah. Right. Um, so I started watching Fox News and reading National Review and all sorts of things. It's so, awesome, right? Fox. News. Well, it's no, but it's like, well, back then, way it was, more entertaining. It, no, you know what? It, way it, more. It, some of them are. So Much you know, more more relatively. Relatively. I, I didn't mean to interrupt. Go ahead. Go ahead. Go on. <laughs> um, so I, I just started trying to understand conservatives and. Um, and over time, what I realized is, wow, they see some things that I just had never seen and that you actually have to listen to people who criticize your views in order to find the truth. And it's just such a basic, obvious point. And this was John Stuart Mill's main point in, in On Liberty. And so that kind of moved me to the center. And I realized we're all really kind of stupid, especially if you put us just in our group and you, and you isolate us. We all get really stupid. And so... I've become a centrist, and I'm one of the relatively few people in the academic world who's really a, a centrist. There, you know, there are a few conservatives here and there, uh, but most people are on the left. And so because of that, I, I can be kind of a bridge builder, and I ended up um, putting together this group to work on the question of poverty uh, because each side, left and right, they have their own solutions, and neither side can solve this on their own. Um, so it just—it was just a—it began as a dinner party where I invited a bunch of people on the left and right to talk it through, and we actually enjoyed We had fun. It was actually really fun to talk. And it grew into this um, big report sponsored by Brookings and AEI. So I don't know, how did you find it? I mean, it's a pretty obscure thing. I, I, I found it because it, because Nicholas Kristof wrote a Times editorial about something and he, he uh, cited this study. So I went to see what oh. it said. And uh, now I, my confirmation bias on that study is that in the end, I felt it, it came down more on the conservative side in the sense that it it endorsed the, 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 the idea that um, unwed, single unwed mothering is, is bad it, for kids. Is bad for kids and that... What a conservative shocking, idea. Well, that, and that poverty, no, that, that any, any gain in, pro, in productivity and the economy cannot ever overtake the, the rising rate of uh, singles. So le- unless we take care of that, we can never really overcome poverty. That, yeah, which is- that's right. It's one of the biggest single things. If you, know, if you want to make a dent in poverty, the most important thing you can do is give kids a stable home life with two people investing them. It doesn't matter what sex they are. Right. Um, and this is one of the problems is that the left has difficulty saying that marriage matters. Now, now that we have gay marriage, now the left is more willing to say that it, it matters. But before gay marriage, there was, there was, there was a lot of resistance. Right. And conversely, the people on the right were reluctant to say that birth control matters. That's the other huge thing. Mm-hmm. If, if young women have easy access to not just any birth control, but LARCs, long-acting reversible contraception, guess what? They don't get pregnant. And, or they don't get pregnant until they're ready to have kids. And then right. you don't get the cycle of poverty. I think the study even gave credence to the idea that some of the social programs, by creating a safety net, even made exa- even exacerbated the yeah. problem of, of birth. I think that was in that um, study. We didn't really talk, and that's what people on the right are always saying. I mean, there's some truth to it sometimes, but, yeah. you know, we still need all those social programs. I, I don't think we no, found it. No, it didn't advocate against social programs. Yeah, it was just didn't. the irony of it seemed to, I, I think it's Well, I think there. that you were saying, at least when we were talking to the ladies last time, I forget what, what her name was, but uh, last time I was on, but it, this idea that if there is a safety Rebecca net. Rebecca Traster. Yeah, yeah, Rebecca Traster. This idea that there is a safety net, it might make a father more inclined to leave if he didn't like the situation because on some mm. basic level he knows that his kid isn't going to starve to death. Whereas if he thinks his kid's going to starve to death, then he might be more inclined to hang out and make sure he does Look, my, my wife is. Yeah, uh, but, my uh, wife grew up in the in the in the ghetto, and right. her family's uh, you know from Brooklyn, and she's Puerto Rican, and she is adamant, and she's not against the programs, but she's adamant that the, the check is uh, definitely a, yeah. a mixed bag. You know, that. No, that's right. So it's not just the existence of the safety net programs, because in Scandinavia, they have really, really good safety net programs. What they also have in Scandinavia is really, really strong norms that you don't be a lazy, you know, uh, parasite. But they also have in Scandinavia uh, a cultural phenomenon where they just don't have kids. No, they actually have among the highest birth rates in Europe. 
But because, they have a declining population. No, they, Sweden, right. like, literally, they have a declining population. Yeah, all so of So the Europe rest does. of Europe doesn't have kids well, also. All the yeah, Western yeah, world yeah. does. But, yeah, but, that's right. but uh, America is a higher... And Japan. Uh, America has a higher, uh, what's it called, birth rate than Sweden. Um, well, overall, I'm sure that we do, but that's because of both immigration and the fact that some recent immigrants have higher birth rates. So if you just compare, say, white Americans to white Swedes, I don't know what the difference is. That right. I don't know. Okay, fair so, enough. So, so, so you're saying in order to, how did you put it, you, you have to be willing to listen to other people's points of view. Yep. So once you really internalize that, it leads you into... Uh, wanting to get to the bottom of things in a way that you hadn't but, before. And then I think that also is why I'm attracted, why I'm so disturbed about political correctness. Mm -hmm. Because if you believe that the most important thing is to be able to listen to the other side, and political correctness is actually telling us that you should never listen to the other side, actually, the other side shouldn't be, even be allowed to that's utter, right. yeah. then, yeah. then it's a recipe for getting things wrong. That's but, right. But I don't, I mean, I think political correctness is, and that issue is valid, <clears throat> but to me feels like sort of the sub-issue of the larger elephant in the room, if you will, which is this inability, and I don't know when it started. I mean, if you look at the Reagan years, right, you had compromise, you know. You, they, 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 either side worked with each other. Um, I mean, you look at Trump. I mean, the poor guy did something with the Democrats regarding the six-month um, uh, uh, spending yeah, cap, and he got lambasted by his own party. And I thought that that was a really smart, good political move, and it gave me a little bit of hope. Where do you feel as, like... As did Schumer and Pelosi get lambasted. I mean, you know... Well, well yeah. I mean, you know, but, but where, did, where, did we, where did we turn the corner in this country, roughly, where we just don't... I don't know how you get the genie back in the bottle um, and get away from tribalism and get away from this yeah. idea that I... Uh, we're, we're also, you know, we just... You, you can't... If you don't get 10 out of 10 of your wins, yeah. then it's considered a loss from by the other side. So... Where did we turn the corner? Yeah. So there's like seven different things going on. It's like, you know, we have like a house on fire and a hailstorm and a rodent infestation. I mean, we got a lot of problems in this country. Yeah. And so what happened in terms of the inability to compromise is that the mid-20th century had all these things going for it that gave us somewhat effective governments. So you had a generation that had fought World War II together, the greatest generation. They were really, really good at putting America first and working together. They had really, really good civic participation norms. They belonged to all kinds of clubs. You had a generational effect. You had this weird thing for a few decades where there were really just three networks, so everybody got the same news. Now, if you go back 200 years, there were hundreds of newspapers, and they were all nasty partisan rags full of lies. So we're back to where we were 200 years ago in that sense. Except it's basic cable news now. It's a, yeah, and, right, and it's got all these different media. So, we got the, so the media environment was really good back then for commonality, for, for a shared political life. And that's gone. From both from cable news was the first nail in the coffin, but then the internet was like 27 more nails. Um, you got the loss of the Cold War. We don't have a common enemy anymore. You have rising education. The more educated people are, the more political they are. You know, working class people care more about things that are going to help them in policy. But the people who are all you know up in arms about these symbolic things, those are mostly college educated. Okay. As, a, as a psychologist now, what about diversity? How does diversity contribute yeah. to the inability of human beings oh boy. to see themselves as the same oh people? Oh boy, yeah. So this is one. Of, oh boy. Okay. So. I guess, all right, we're here, we're talking about political correctness. So in, in my world, in the academic world, there are about seven things that are third rails that are, that are you can get in big trouble for talking about. And diversity is one of them. You know, race, gender, immigration, a whole bunch of areas. And these are the m most important areas where we really need good social science because we've got to figure these things out. Yeah. So the very short version, which I, I can say because I'm among uh, politically uh, in, uh, incorrect friends, I suppose, is that diversity, if you just look at it from a social science perspective, mixing people up who are different has got to have a lot of good effects and bad effects. So yeah, it increases creativity. There are a lot of good things about it. America would not be the dominant force in culture if we didn't have so much immigration from all these different countries. So diversity has many good things, but has a lot of bad things. The main one being it decreases trust. So Scandinavia has all this amazing social capital, which means the ability to trust each other yeah, because yeah. they all had the same language, same norms, same religion. They were small countries. And as you get immigration, you get declining trust. Now you get rising creativity, you get better food. So there are advantages. But yeah, there are some downsides. But you can't really talk about okay, that. Okay, question. Peter Baynard made the same point, trust, by the way. Yeah, that's right. Peter Baynard, that's right. When but you I, say trust, Baynard, Baynard, is trust required to manipulate the tribe? So let's say I have this tribe, mm -hmm. right? I'm yeah. Sweden. Mm -hmm. And 
Like, for example, I have some friends in Sweden, and smoking weed in Sweden is looked at as horrible. Like, it's looked hmm. at as bad as doing cocaine, right? Matter of fact, oh, there's very harsh cocaine. drug laws in Sweden. Sweden. Mm-hmm. Now, my friends smoke weed embarrassing, like embarrassed. Like, they do it in the oh, privacy uh-huh. of their own homes. And this is like a really progressive place, right? But I think they're able to push that narrative because there is this, as you say, trust, right? We have this strong cultural identity, mm. and it's easy to say Swedish people don't smoke weed. So the powers that be at the top who make the decisions for the tribe mm. can go, hey, we got to do this. Now, that's much oh. more difficult when you have diversity because these tribes, yeah. this tribe likes smoking weed. This tribe doesn't. Okay. That, well, I'm, puzzled. I'm, I'm surprised that Sweden has such, has such enormous likelihood because they're, in general, they're very progressive on sexual matters. They're very progressive. So there might be some particular cultural history around weed or around drugs in sure. Sweden. But, right, but the point is they have... Um, it, it's not exactly a small town, but everybody either knows everybody or is related to everybody you know, to, yeah. with, with two links. They're tied into the Swedish identity. Yeah. And whatever you attach to that Swedish identity, you can use to manipulate the people, right? Perhaps. Manipulate is now perhaps could, a bad word. Yeah. But no, the only reason I'm, I think you're right, but the only reason I'm hesitating is because if you have low trust and a lot of fear, you can also manipulate the people. I mean, right. You can manipulate the people out of love or out of fear, out you of confusion. You got Saddam or you got yeah, well, uh, Jesus. Yeah, yeah or well, uh, what's his name? Jim, Jim, Jim Jones, that guy from yeah. Guyana. Oh, there you yeah. go, yeah. So See, Saddam to me, it's, it's, yeah. Not so I, much, it's not so much the concern for me is not so much the manipulation by the powers that be, yeah. but the manipulation of each other at, at ground level, right? Yeah. So if I if I'm a liberal and you're a conservative and I you just have hell bent on your point of view and I am on mine and we do not come together mm-hmm. because we just don't give in anymore, that to me is where the erosion is. And yeah. I don't know that we go back. Like yeah. we, you know, and, and did we, we ever give in? Uh, yeah, oh yeah. I mean, you look at. I mean, you look at. Uh, you look at Did Baker. We, but yeah, well, Baker yeah, there was used Senate to be majority yeah. leader. Hamilton and Jefferson. Oh, yeah. No, no I but mean, there used to be norms of I compromise. Mean, yeah. So, so one of the big things that changed in Washington um, is that it used to. There used to be a political culture of men who lived in Washington. Their wives were served on charities together. Their kids went to school together. And so politicians tend to be really social, really socially skilled people, usually very warm people. And you put a bunch of them together, they form communities. They can deal in the back rooms. They can make deals. So we had an effective political culture for a long time. Now, what changed is that when Newt Gingrich came in in 1995 and took over, the, you know, the Republicans took over, um, he did not want all these new Republicans coming. He did not want them making friends with the Democrats. Now, he had reasons for being mad as hell because the Democrats had treated Republicans badly. I'm not saying this is, you know, he had no reason for this. Right. But he came in, he said, don't move to Washington. All you new, new first-year Congress, don't move to Washington. Keep your family in your home district. I'm going to change the calendar. All business is done basically Tuesday afternoon through Thursday morning. And so just, you know, you, you get a room, you bunk together, don't have to ever meet Democrats. And so he changed the calendar. And this kind of destroyed the, the normal human bonds in Washington. And then those norms filtered up to the Senate as those men became then senators and as the whole norms of Washington changed. I, I so, never knew this. Interesting. So, so you, asked, you asked, when did we turn the corner? Well, there were a, a lot of things came together, but the 90s is the key decade. We enter the 90s with an effective political culture with the, the, ba- the, uh, the greatest generation still kind of in charge. And by 2000, the greatest generation's retired as the baby boomers in charge. We have the internet, we have much nastier uh, media, we have more money in politics. Um, and so by, the, by then, by 2001, we were on the road to hell. Can I, can I, can I bring this to an issue which, I, which um, I think is more essential than any other issue that comes to mind right now that uh, we need to be able to talk to people who disagree with us and we need... What's the matter? I was just going to get something to write something down. But oh, I, ha- I have something. And we need... Um, we can't solve it unless we're able to look at it in a kind of a, 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 dis- a disattached way. This is this whole issue of uh, race and policing. Now, I have been scouring every article that I can find for a long time to find out what's really going on here with the police. Are they shooting black people more than they're they're shooting white people? And every study that I find, including one that was in the New York Times by this black um, economist at at Harvard, is finding, now now just saying is going to get me in trouble, and I saw it also in the Washington Post, that the data shows that in actuality, Black people are not shot more than mm-hmm. white people. This is what the right. data shows. If data data shows white people are actually shot more, even in circumstances yeah. where the officer had the right to use and, uh, lethal and force. And yeah. you add to that um, the fact that the crime rates are such that, for instance, in New York, where only like 2%, less than 2% of violent crime is white, uh, 
that what or let's take it to Chicago. In Chicago, where you have 500 murders in a year, mostly in the black community, right. how much friction is the white community going to have with cops, and how much friction is the innocent? I'm talking about the wholesome, innocent black right. community who are, who are victims here, but they're going to have friction with cops all the time. Right. So what's the truth of the matter? Because yeah. if the truth of the matter, here we are, tearing apart as a country, and this is another brick in the whole mm-hmm. Uh, beef that half the country seems to have that America is not a great country. That America, you know, it, it, Can I add one and, thing wait, wait, wait. to that study? Yeah, though? Yeah, Just yeah. real quick, the study did show that that blacks were pushed up against walls more often. They were roughed up by cops more often. Yes, but, so outside of lethal force, black people were treated differently than white people by the cops. And I think what that helps someone to believe it primes them to a circumstance where a black person does get killed. So yeah. if you're a black person who's been treated different than your white friends by a cop and then you see a black guy get killed, you go, well, that makes perfect sense because I'm always That's treated different. That's a really different. good point. Oh, like yeah. the whole system yeah, is bad. Yeah. Let's not get sidetracked. It doesn't mean that it's accurate. <laughs> no, no, no. Let's, I, I agree with your but point. But this is where the thinking comes from. I agree with your point, but, I, but I'm, I'm saying let's not get sidetracked because if this is not true, yeah. this is my big beef with the Kaepernick sure. thing. I, I, I don't care about the flag and I don't care if he takes a knee. I, and I think he should protest. They have a right to protest because of the NFL contract and he mm-hmm. can protest whatever he wants. Sure. But if it's not true, it's tremendously damaging to right. the nation. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm not even going to put you on the spot to have no, to no, say I'll, what you think about no, it. No, no, I'd be happy to say what I think. Okay. This is, it's a nice example for us to work through. Yeah. So this is why things are so hard, and this is why we're so divided, because um, social science is hard, and there is a lot of evidence on all sides for whatever case you want to make. It doesn't mean that everything's true. So in the case, what you're talking about, Noam, is there have been three or four studies that have been done now that looked at the question of once a police officer engages with a with a suspect, um, is that police officer more likely to actually kill him if he's black? And force, as you say, the four studies have basically found no, they're not. Now there are some now there are some small differences. Yet one study, I think maybe it was the Fryer study. One study found that they were more likely to use force, but less likely to use lethal force. But right. those effects were not large, and so I wouldn't make much of them. So if you just want to look at, are the cops racist? And can we fix this problem by reprogramming the cops? The answer seems to be no. No, we cannot fix the problem that way. Now, let's turn it around, though. What do people on the other side say? Um, Well, if you're a black man, what's your life going to be like? So you guys here, how many times in the last 10 years have you been stopped by a cop for anything? It's Other happened, than speeding, it's, it's actually happened to me twice, but very unusual. Okay, yeah. sure. So, but I, if I, I get stopped by, I pushed up against the wall once by a cop. For, sure. Okay. But if I get stopped by a cop, I assume it's because he's a dick. Black guy gets yes. stopped by a cop, he assumes because he's racist. Now, a certain amount of those cops are just going to be dicks, regardless of race. Uh, okay, sure. The, the, uh, the, uh, well, I don't want to get. I don't want to be here saying yeah. Well, okay, yes. You don't know. A certain number will be racist. Right. Right. Yeah, right. That's right. But if, but the larger point is this. The, the big difference, as Noam referred to, the big difference is that the crime rates vary a lot by race. So that's, that's the elephant in the room. And so what that means is that if you're a black guy who has is not committed any crimes, you are still more likely to be a suspect. Mm. You are, the police are going to be involved in your life. They're going to be looking at you differently. Right. And so there are just repeated indignities. If you're a black person in this country, that's right. there are just repeated indignities right. that we as white guys just don't have to experience. So that's very real. But don't you so, need to layer in econoc- economic circumstances? Because if we're talking about an upper middle class no, black No, 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 He's saying no, no, even, even still. Even, even still. still. Hey, well, I, yeah. think what I put it this way. I think to be raised black in America is a psychologically traumatic event that is not for whatever the reasons are from the day you're born what you see the way you're looked at the way you're treated as opposed to the way my children are looked at treated, or whatever this cannot possibly but scramble your brain and well, no hold on a second I, I would not go with you to say it is automatically a traumatic event if you are black you are going to face more daily indignities the, absolutely I would you know that is true and we all have to acknowledge that mm-hmm. now is that traumatic well that's where that's where it's either, it's kind of up to you how to interpret it. And so this is where previous generations were taught, and you look at the way the civil rights protesters were prepared, say, you're going to go in, people are going to say these things to you, let's practice. Let's practice being insulted. Just don't react, don't react. Mm. Um, and uh, these days, in order to cope with our crazy world, I'm reading Marcus Aurelius in the morning, his meditations. It's, you know, how do you, how do you live within a world that's kind of insane? That's what an intellectual sounds like, Paul. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> and, you know, that's and, what McMaster <laughs> reads that, too, I think. Uh, the, the, the but but this, is what, this is what the Stoics and the Buddhists all say, is there's nothing good or bad, but thinking makes it so. Okay, that was Shakespeare, but they, it's all the same idea. And so um, I'm just going to say, if we're teaching students, as we do on campus now, 
to do the opposite. We teach them to take more offense, to find ever smaller things offensive to the point where we tell them, you know, if you get a bunch of insults, it's actually going to shorten your life. It's going to kill you. Mm. So if we tell people, especially people of color, that they should find more offense and take more offense, we're actually hurting them. Yes. So um, anyway, I think we're, yeah, we're doing a lot of things wrong in but this But I'm, I'm afraid that it is traumatic only in the sense that these are children. But A lot of this is before, before they're thinking people and they learn they, they've internalized this to some degree. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I, I, it, it worries me. It worries me. And by the way, because I... You know, been wanting to ask you these things forever. This thing was it in Minnesota where the guy shot the, the Sterling? Stur- no, yeah, no, 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 that was Orlando Castile. Castile was, Castile was in Minnesota. Yeah. So this this also plays into what I think social science can help us. So when it happened, I said to myself, "Well, look, if I'm a if I'm a depraved cop and I want to murder some stranger I've never met before in a car, yeah, am I really going to do it?" And not shoot his wife too, or while his wife, you know, it's hard to imagine. Like if you were, if, if he's a right. murderer, just you, you shoot them down. Right. Right. Um, so I said, well, what could be going on here? I said, well, so, so then it led me to think about the the idea of a, what does it mean to panic? And I researched, and I'm sure you know something about the fight or flight mm-hmm. response. Yeah. And what I found was that science tells us that actually the mind. Uh, before the mind can think about it, the, the, the fight, the action. The fight yeah. action already is is down the pike. So that literally before he, the cop yeah. shoots, before um, before the cop even thinks about what's going on, he may shoot. Well, if but that's the whole point of training. What the military well, figured what out long ago. What, what can yeah. social science? What can psychi- psychology teach us? Because this is how you yeah. solve the problem. Right. Well, well, but it sounds like something you can't have control over at some point in that moment. I, I, right? I'm, yeah. I'm interested right. in what. But, but if you call them racist, yeah. Yeah. that's not going to solve the problem. I'm interested what you have to say, but okay. then I want to yeah. add something. Okay. But yeah, yeah. Sure. so um, the so the stress or fear makes the most practiced response come out. So if your most if the thing that you would, nat- would naturally do is run away, then when you're afraid, you'll run away. Right. But if the thing you would, or if you're trained to drop to the ground or to raise your weapon or whatever, basic training in the military for the police makes it so that when they are when they are facing a possible life-threatening situation, they don't just follow what they would have done as a normal citizen. They f- they follow the training. So we're, if cops are properly yeah. trained, then this shouldn't be happening. So we're creatures of habit. Right. It's, it's so, very similar but, to like a boxer. If somebody throws yeah. a jab at you and you practice slipping that jab and throwing a right hand, yeah. that's going to be your natural reaction. If I throw a jab at you, you might run that way or jump and, and, and grab a chair, yeah. or do something mm-hmm. like that, et cetera. Okay. But there are exceptions. They so, are trained. Of course. But here's, here's a question I have, right? If Is it possible that we're looking at the cops and the cops are really the tip of the iceberg? So policing, is it really the tip of the, if, if we learn that police are going to be faced with impoverished and often minority communities at a rate that's 20 times higher than every other one, so therefore they're going to be forced to possibly arrest and maybe even shoot at a rate that's 20 times higher, we're going to have these higher statistics. Maybe the way of tackling this issue isn't putting all the blame on police, but rather working on the factors that put these people in front of yeah. the police to get arrested. Well, this is what I was saying about tying it to that's the right. economics. Right. It, it, it is tied to well, sort of it, 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 poverty on some yeah. level. Well, that's right. No and that's shaking why the, his head. But, but yeah, I want to hear what you have to right. say. About. So the, the, the way, so there, there's two ways you can approach racism. Yeah. One is you can try to change people's stereotypes and prejudices. Right. But that, we don't know how to do that. There are not any effective therapies. And the bottom line is that people are really good at noticing differences among groups. You can't stop them from doing that. The better way to eliminate racism is to eliminate differences between groups, to try to actually create equality. And that's what we need to be doing. And so that means, it means trying to fix the pipeline. It means trying to break the, break the cycle of poverty. And that brings us back to the poverty report. Until we can change the conditions of childhood, and that largely also means getting to the point of delayed responsible parenting. When we have a lot of kids... Uh, so look, Asians almost always are married by the time they have kids. There's almost no out-of-wedlock Asian yeah. kids in this country. And they have norms that stress schooling and self-control and all sorts of things. Yeah. So there are cultural differences. Those are related to economic differences. Except when they drink. But go ahead, go ahead. So, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, you, don't have to, you don't have to endorse that. That's, okay. a, that's, a, that's for know, us. That's a guy comedian. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, that's we know you guys, what we're talking about. Yeah, that's right. you, can be, you, you comedians can still make ethnic yeah, yeah. jokes. I can't. I'm a professor. <laughs> Go ahead. We're going so, to notice so on, difference between people. No, he didn't finish. He didn't finish. But on, so on a certain level, yeah. is assimilation necessary for equality? 
Should we be enforcing assimilation if we want groups to receive equal treatment? Yes. Yeah. Um, I would say it, it, I wouldn't say that it is necessary, but I would say that it is generally helpful. And now, so okay. like yeah. you know, like a, I don't know, at least two two of us here are, are Jewish, but we are products of of a of a period of of high immigration into this country, um, followed by a long period of assimilation when there was very low immigration. So assimilation worked fantastically for the Jews, and so you know a lot of Jewish intellectuals think, oh well, that you know that's the way to go. You know things are different now. Um, if you you know if, if if you come poor to this country now, it's a lot harder to climb up to the middle class than it was for my our grandparents or parents' generation. My dad says uh, my dad was born poor in Brooklyn. Um, his grandparents are from Russia and Poland. Exactly my same biography. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, and he said, and he went to he went to uh, uh, he got a scholarship to Purdue, and then he put himself through night school and law school at George Washington, and he was in the, in Johnson and Johnson, the corporate world, and he says in the fifties the economy was growing so fast that they couldn't keep the Jews out, even though there were, you know, there were firms that wouldn't hire Jews, but things were growing so fast they just needed, that they could, yeah, yeah, they couldn't. And now it's different. They're, you know, we've got stagnant growth. Their, uh, companies don't invest in you for life. So if you come here poor, even if your parents are married and they have a good work ethic, it's just, you know, assimilation is not going to work the magic now that it did in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. Why but there it? are groups that don't assimilate mm -hmm. and have incredible success. Indians. Chinese, Nigerians, but to they a stay extent. very. Well, but they have a very strong cultural backbone, and they, they, you know, they still have arranged marriages. I mean, it's a really good point to bring up some India, but it, it sort of, I don't know if this. They have a strong community backing them, but they aren't assimilating yet. Experience the same success. So, is it assimilation, or is it, or is it buying into certain values of success? Right. So the most important thing is to have norms and culture that lead to success. So if you have, if you have um, a really strong work ethic in your culture, if you are Confucian or, or uh, South Asian uh, Hindus um, in particular. So look, I've been at universities for a long time now. And when I'm advising students and they come in to talk to me, and if it's a Korean student, an Indian student, yeah. um, it's, you know, it's like my parents' generation of Jews. It's like, you know, you know, my parents insist that I have to be a doctor or an engineer, but you know, I want to be an artist. And, I want to be in the NBA. Yeah. So, One Asian ruins it for everybody. Jeremy Lin should be put down. So, you know, so the point is that you don't have to assimilate to be successful in this country. Right. But you do have to have the ability to delay gratification, pursue education, work hard, and have social networks to draw on. That was the secret that the Jews had. It's what Koreans have. So if you can draw on all your relatives who will give you a loan and get your business started, you don't have to assimilate. You're going to be successful in this Is this country. the reason that the African-American community is still struggling with single parents and fathers that don't support the children? Like, there's... You know, as a society, we've progressed a lot from the days of uh, slavery and then uh, downright straight-up racism. So there are, there are very well-educated African-American leaders who, who are day in and day out through living example, being li a living example and through speeches and, and writings are telling their brethren, hey, we need to clean up our act, right? Mm -hmm. why, is th why is that ch taking so long to land with mm -hmm. with that yeah. with that particular race. Yeah. That so uh, so the first thing is I wouldn't talk about it in terms of race because you look at Caribbean uh, immigrants, black black people from the Caribbean who come here with strong family, strong work ethic, and they're yeah. very yeah. successful. That's why I bring so up not, Nigerians yeah. as well. Yeah. So yeah. it's right. So it's not it's not a race thing. It's a culture thing. Hmm. And you know I'm not an expert American this, but, specific. But, but that's right. so, yeah. so look, obviously look you know slavery destroyed the African American family. Yeah. I, I'm not a social or cultural historian, so I can say exactly what happened or yeah. how. But yeah, there is so it's a subcultural thing. Hmm. Okay, so how do we instill social networks in groups that don't have social networks, values of hard work and delayed gratification to groups that don't have these values of hard work and delayed gratification, and the value of education? How do you instill, if we know that's the only way to succeed, how do you instill that? Can, can, I, can I, do you want to answer that? I kinda know, that that's I, a tough I, one. That's I want to yeah. kind of save him from, from going on record about the about what he thinks about these issues and, and, and stick to more what we can learn from him about how we ought to be looking at issues. I'd much rather talk about yeah, that. Yeah. Okay. And um, for instance, I have this analogy that I, that I use a lot now. It have, my father once mentioned, like offhand said to me, you know, everything looks work, worse under a microscope. And it always stayed with me. And I thought about like the issues that face us today, like in the 50s, you know, you ever have a microscope where you spin the thing? Sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So in the 50s, it was like a one-to-one -one thing and, and things were pretty bad. You could see it. 
And then we kind of cleaned that up. So we switched it to two times. And we're looking at things at like 64 times now. And some, <laughs> but they look through this microscope well, as if they're the worst things ever. I'm sorry, are you, are you saying things aren't as bad as they seem? We're just looking I'm at saying them that in we, a different that, way? That, that, as that things we, get better, yeah, our level of what's acceptable gets uh, lower and lower and lower, or higher, whatever you want to yeah, say. Yeah, yeah, to the yeah. point where we, we kind of lose perspective that yeah. we're, we're zoomed in at 128 yeah. times, and it looks mm. as horrible as it used to. Yeah. Right. And how do we put things in perspective that way? I, I don't know if you have any yeah. thoughts well, about just, that. Yeah, no, just that, you know, in gen by almost as any matter objective... Fact, we seem to think they're worse than they were when they yeah. were actually worse, so I'm a big fan of Steve Pinker, who, who wrote a book called The Better Angels of Our Nature, and he documents how almost everything's getting better in this country and around the world in terms of decline of violence, decline of racism, decline of genocide. So the long-term trends are really, really good. Um, now, we, what we do, at least in my world on campus, is you never hear anyone say that things are getting better. Um, we, we do exactly what you say. We change. So now it's not, there's no more explicit, um, there's hardly any explicit prejudice, but now we talk about unconscious bias. And there's a whole, a whole big area of research on unconscious bias. if you're bias. unconscious, then is it bias? Uh, we have yeah. to get yeah. into yeah. this, yeah. but it's like a whole... Yeah. So I think what you're saying is about how we keep changing, we keep moving the goalposts, in, in effect. I think that's true. Um, we do. Um, and I imagine criminal justice, I don't know the stats, but I imagine in the 60s, a lot more black guys are being shot by cops yeah. than are now. Yeah. Yeah. Did you read Andrew Sullivan's piece? It's like Point zero 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 six, the odds of a black guy being shot. Point yeah, zero 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 six shark attack. Let's not get yeah. back to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 No, but I'm saying things. But <laughs> He'll get fired. In other words, one way to look at it is things have gotten exponentially better. Yeah, they Another have. Way okay. to look at so now let's it. bring in social media yeah. because this is one of the reasons why we are drowning in stories about things that are terrible. And so, just a little example. Did any guys see uh, in the news this morning or yesterday? Um, some, it was a lawyer at CBS, a vice president of something or yeah. other, said on her Facebook page, ah, you know, those people in Vegas, they deserved it because they're Trump Republicans supporters. and country music fans, they support guns, they deserved it. Okay, so it's disgusting, it's, it's repulsive, it's horrible. But now here's the thing, if you go back 20 or 30 years, every time there was something like this, something terrible, you know, we're a country with 300 million people in it, there must have been five or ten who thought the worst thing you can possibly imagine. But back then, they would think it, they would say it to someone, and that was the end of it. Yep. It's the yeah. same with, yeah. you referenced it, and so did uh, Andrew about Hamilton and Jefferson. You know, this sort of partisan bickering and the nasty, it was mm -hmm. at yeah, least was as bad. bad, if not worse, 200, 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. So that that's so. validates what Noam is saying about sort of where, you know, we're, we're putting a microscope at 100 on this. But it's not, it's not just that we're putting a microscope. It's that, it's that because of social media and the new media landscape, everyone is now immersed in and inflamed by the worst possible stories about the other side. And this is now carefully curated. So, um, we, you know, it, it, when, when people get stories in to your Facebook feed or Twitter, whatever it is, mm -hmm. you selectively decide what to forward. Yeah, and yeah, so we yeah. have actual evolution going on. Like, Darwinian evolution of memes, and so only the most outrageous ones get sent on. Right. But but here's the thing. I mean, you, this is an interesting this, point, though. Not to need, cut you, we, but like we need a lot of cultural norms. I, you know, when I when I think about uh, what I think ought to be, what guys like, whether Google should fire these people, whether I was saying to myself, I keep coming back to think, what we need is a cultural norm of respect for diversity of opinion. You can't... You can't but there's not... How much respect can you have? That's what people ask. You need right. to, you can need somebody to, be a public Nazi is what people... Is I, a real Nazi. I would say yes. You would say yes, yes. but... I mean... When, all right, you asked me. I have if no I, problem with If there's a Nazi. choice between extreme censorship and extreme freedom, I'll take extreme freedom every single time. That being said, not okay. everybody is going to take that. Okay, but yeah. let's let, before well, like, I get yeah. to the Nazis, just I mean, I'm talking about like on an issue of police violence. Yes, there sh it should you people who think like me, which are a lot of people who really want to be on the right moral side, really care about this, sure, but feel that constrained that they have to know what the data is and True. they and they can as a leap of faith just like you you have to respect the data on global warming you have to respect the data on whatever it is and and you can't talk about it out loud you cannot talk about yeah. it that's that is because the cultural norm is not what it should be people sure. should be ready to accept that i'm sorry mm -hmm. um yeah this is one of the reasons i'm so alarmed is that is that democracy universities science we have a whole bunch of institutions that take flawed, stupid, moralistic people and put them together in a way where their flaws cancel each other out. 
And so in science, for example, science is, is so successful, not because individual scientists have such high IQs or are so open-minded. They're not, necessarily. They, we, you know, in science, we all try to prove our own theories. We don't try to disprove our own theories. But we're immersed in networks where other people are going to disprove them for us. So we have to be careful. We have to be conscientious. Um, and if that breaks down, and this is, one of the, this is why I started this group called Heterodox Academy with a few other professors, um, when when you get political nor when everybody's on one side politically, and people can't talk about diversity or race or gender in an open way, then people who propose hypotheses that are pleasing to our side, well, those theories, those those studies get passed through, you know, get the passed through peer review more easily. And, and and that's the kind of thing that supports the what we've been seeing, especially with social media, is that the truth really doesn't matter. This this election and this president right now, regardless of your politics, the truth, Gary Kasparov said that you can annihilate the truth by continually denying the, 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 the validity of facts that you don't agree with, right? Which is what yeah. we're seeing. And so if the life raft for all of this, in my mind, is truth, right? Facts, reality. It's all been blurred now. And I don't know if yeah. you go back. And, I, and and only one part of that is, you know, these planted stories by mm -hmm. Russian hackers Man. and whatever. And it, and, yeah. you, and and so where does that, why do you go, ah, you don't you know, believe, that believe that? that I mean, I, I believe it happened, but I don't believe that. I, I think well, let's it, not it, get distracted I, I think if it, it not happened, this is really Yeah, this is really central. This is not, it's, it's not a distraction at all. We're at a very critical time yeah. in our culture, and social media is at the center of it, That's where right. truth and facts do not matter anymore because of everything that we've been talking about. Tribalism. We mm -hmm. have to be right. We'll be right to the point Can I, can where I tell you why I went, eh? Because there's always going to be somebody out there putting out bogus facts, whether it's the Russians or, or I mean, the Russians were no more... But now people are accepting yeah. the bogus okay. facts. So but what, what needs to change is the, the, is the cultural norm where people just blindly repeat facts, don't have any right. skepticism about well, that's, okay. so, what, so, what if we're not we're capable of that? That's my fear. My yeah. fear is that we are so tribal. Like in your book, you say we're 90% ape. Our brains are 90% ape, 10% no, high. It's, it's confirmation bias. Well, mm -hmm. it is confirmation bias, right? It's like I, I go on. If I'm a Hillary supporter, I go. I turn on CNN and I go, tell me why Trump sucks. Right? I don't seek information, okay. I seek confirmation. So what, what we're suffering from is the, is the coming together of two trends that, that are, you know, it's like parts of a chemical weapon where they mix. And, they, and, and those two things are um, a media ecology that gives us ever more powerful outrage stories, um, whether they're true or not, and increasing cross-partisan hostility that makes us want to believe. So why is fake news going up? Part of it is the, the business models, the algorithms used by Facebook and Twitter. You know, you probably read the stories that were in the Washington Post about these guys in Slovakia or somewhere in Eastern Europe yeah, 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 two yeah. years ago. And they, they didn't care about politics, but they just found that if they did certain things, they, they took off on the right but not the left. So right. they didn't care. So, there's a, so the media story is a big part of that. And for some reason, right-wing media is just more conducive to the, these outrage stories now than left-wing media is. But, but, but look at the passions. Okay, whichever side is more furious, that side is more subject to fake news. So back, back uh, in the early 2000s, the left had what was called Bush derangement syndrome. They were so mad at George W. Bush that they would believe almost anything. And then Obama got elected, and that was flipped. And now it was the right's turn to believe any crazy thing. Even about and now, Bill Clinton, too, he, that he okay. killed Vince Foster. Yeah, that's it was right. crazy stuff. That's yeah. right. So with each, with each successive change of parties, things get worse and worse. Now, I don't think Trump is just one more in the story. Trump is a, a gigantic discontinuity away from normal democratic norms. I'm not saying he's, it's more of the same. But, but so the left is understandably outraged, you know, in a state of complete disbelief, which means that they're much more vulnerable to fake news than they were back when Obama was in power. And somebody who wants to make a buck is going to know that, that's, that there's a customer there. Right. Yeah. And you don't need yeah. the Russians to do it. Are that. we capable of critical thinking? Under the right circumstances, yes. How do we create those? What are those circumstances? Okay, the circumstances that, yeah. Good question. So, uh, Thank you. Well, in fact, in chapter four of The Righteous Mind, I cover the research on this. No, I literally... I didn't get the four yet. Damn it. I'm at the hive brain. Yeah, no, no, no. You know, when I, when I do an interview, I know that people read only the first three pages and maybe up to five. But I anyway. read the whole book. Go ahead. Yeah. I'm getting... I'm, I just started. I need some time to dig it. Listen, I have notes in the phone. I take it very seriously. 
Go on, he, I'm going to show you the notes. Here. I'm going to show you the But notice what's happening here yeah. is he is embarrassed that he didn't read the book. I need and so to he's trying exactly. He's trying yeah. to save his reputation like by showing pictures. me proof. There's like you were saying, no, like you were saying earlier, we're constantly in a state of saving reputation. I'm sure on some level. My, I want my questions to you validated because I view you as a smart well, that, person. If you right. think they're good, and then so they're reputation good. is the key to critical thinking. Okay. So here's what the research shows. This is research from Phil Tetlock, a professor at Penn at, at Wharton. Okay. Um, so you give people complex problems where if they really think it through, they could get the right answer, and. Uh, what the crucial thing as to whether they do is what they think the social accountability is going to be. So if you just tell them, here, what's the right answer, they're kind of lazy, they don't do it. If you tell them, okay, figure this out, and you're going to go before a group of people and present, you're going to explain what this was about. Well, if they think that that group of people wants to believe one side, they're more likely to do the thinking to get them to that side. If they think that the group of people they're talking to is going to evaluate them and they really care about the right answer or they're, you know, they're being evaluated for their own intelligence or something, then they actually will look at evidence on both sides. So it's only if you're going to be held accountable by an audience that actually wants the right answer, not a particular answer, that you will think that you will think critically. In other words, yes, we're capable of it, but only under very rare circumstances. How do you get yourself to think critically? Um, what checks do you have that go on in your mind? Well, first of all, I'm a lot less passionate than most people about politics. So from the eight, in the 80s, I was always outraged at Reagan, and I was always outraged well, in the, in the Bush years. And once Bush was out of office, and I became a centrist, so I'm, I'm not on a team anymore. So I think I'm a little... I'm a little less passionate, but and on the other hand, because of that, you're able to think more objectively and clearly and see both sides of an well, issue. I think, well, I think I'm able like a, because I'm like not a man a, castrated. He's able to, uh, <laughs> able to deal with hot well, women. Okay. <laughs> well, actually, you know, that's not a bad example. <laughs> so, so I think because I'm not on a team, I'm not on a tribe. So at least I'm able to listen to both sides. Right. But you know, I still, I still have my causes. I mean, I believe in viewpoint diversity and head. So I'm passionate about that. So I do, I like. I do seek out criticism. Like I look at, you know, if, if someone tweets something nasty about me or something, I, you know, I'll, I'll follow them or I'll read it. I, I, my favorite philosopher now is John Stuart Mill. It used to be David Hume. And when I wrote the book, it was David Hume. But now it's John Stuart Mill who wrote in On Liberty, uh, he who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. And he goes on to explain how we need dissent. We need critics in order to think well. And because the truth often is shared by both sides. So, I, you know, I do, I, I read a lot of stuff on the right and the left, and I think it makes me a better social scientist. I, I, I would think, but just very similar to what he just said, I always think to myself, I've made this analogy on the radio before, if I'm repeating myself, that every idea should be thought of like a criminal defendant. It's entitled to its best defense. I yeah. don't dismiss the idea until you, because most people are not interested in the best defense of right. the idea. That's right. They're interested in, in the easiest characterization to dismiss the idea. Yeah. And I go through it all the time as a matter of self-discipline. Mm. Even on issues very close to me, like Israel and things like that, I really try you do, and you're very, to you're force very good at myself. That. But to yeah. force when I feel myself getting uncomfortable. But here's the thing that's making me nervous. It's a, yeah. Within the tribe, yeah. Yeah. whether it's right or left, I have no agenda here. There's now sort of, there is a revolt within the tribe, right? So let's talk about conservatives for a second. In 2015, Limbaugh went off because he didn't like the deal that the conservatives cut with the Democrats. And he felt like the conservatives were not representing the Republican values. And that started to foment this sort of alt-right, whatever you want mm -hmm. to call it, sort of the Steve Bannons of the world and the Breitbarts, and empowered them and empowered Trump. Right. And, so, and so Charlie Sykes has this book, and it's called How the Right Lost Its Mind. And it's a oh, yeah. really great yeah. book. And he, I really respect him because he's a conservative. I don't necessarily see eye to eye with him on a lot of issues, but he is true to his cause, and he's, he's reasonable. Mm -hmm. He'll listen. He'll listen to the other side. So we've gone to another level now. Roger Ailes is gone. Bannon takes his place. Mm -hmm. Okay? We have Roy Moore being elected. Okay. Oh, he Mitch doesn't want to get sucked into the. No, no. I'm just, yeah, I'm just yeah, talking yeah. about sort of within it. This tribalism. There's sort of revolt within the tribe. I only see this. I don't want to be negative, but it's, I see it getting worse. And I don't know. This goes back to what Andrew was asking. Sort of, how do we use critical thinking and get back to a place where yeah. we're not sort of devouring ourselves? Yeah. So I, I am not a big fan of people just sort of like snapping out of it, getting smart, and thinking better. It's very hard for us to do. I'm a big fan of changing systems, changing systemic variables. Um, so, what are some examples? Um, well, obviously, you know the, the the algorithms used by Facebook and Twitter to present you with things. If they, we could tweak those so that that you get a um, more of a mix of things and not just the stuff that you already liked. So, the, um, so social media is a piece of it. 
changing the calendar in Washington, getting Congress to be more functional, that's a piece of it. Um, I do think we need to change the way a lot of things we do in universities. We need to change the way that we orient students when they first come in. We should orient them with training for how to actually seek out um, debate, dissent within a community that, that likes and trusts each other. We need to have more a sense of shared identity first. And when you have a sense of shared identity as members of a college or something like that, then you can actually disagree profitably. But if you start off with distrust in the sense that everybody is whatever. Look at, look at how this, uh, quick this issue... Question. Well, I want quick to talk question. about the Vegas thing. Go ahead. Just a quick question. Yeah. Is it possible we're not smart enough to have, or the majority of people are not smart enough to have social media? <laughs> oh, boy. And, 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 and I'll frame it like this. We have this idea of a representative democracy, right? Mm -hmm. We kind of lie to people when we go, hey, you guys are in charge. You decide what, what laws are made, et cetera. But realistically, the smart 0.01% of society makes all the decisions, and they fucking should. They're the smart people, right? Most people are idiots. Let them be idiots. Then we get social media, and the idiots actually have a voice. They get to chase down the things okay, that they so like. I, I have a book. Andrew's I have a, a snob, book for you to read. Yeah, yeah. I have a, a good book for you to read. So. I, maybe I am a smob. Yeah, yeah. No, I really yeah, do. It's a really on, some, on, a, on a real okay. level, I, I'm yeah. wondering if it even makes sense. I love representative democracy. Lie to the people, make them think they have freedom, then check all of me, my emails, and make sure I'm not blowing shit up. Should it be okay. regulated? So, right. All right. So um, this is what Plato thought when he wrote the Republic. He yeah. designed the ideal Plato society. Plato slaves, so that by the way. The, so I'm gonna I'm gonna take a knee right now. Take a knee. Go ahead. Go ahead. But you know. So this is a, um, an idea that has often occurred, and it especially occurs to people who tend to be on, on the left, that we should have a meritocracy and we should have the smart class in charge. Um, and I think what you're pointing to is the reason that don't the founding say fathers... don't say Well, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's yeah, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, and what you're pointing to the, uh, is the reason why the founding fathers did not want a democracy, because democracy has all these problems. You get passions. But what we have is not supposed to be democracy. It's supposed to be a republic in which the people don't get to make the laws. We don't consult the people and say, what do you want, people? No, Love but it. what you have to have, what you have to have is that the people have to be able to throw the bums out if they're not satisfied. If you don't have that, then you've got tyranny. But Love that, so, too. You believe in term limits? Okay. And let me, what? You believe in term limits? No, uh, no, it's an empirical question. That is, places that have term limits, do things get better? And the answer is no, they get worse. Okay. Uh, because then the staff stays... And the sort of the expertise that you need uh, to get things done disappears. So no, term limits seems like a good idea from the outside, but the political scientists all tell me no, it, do, it generally does not work. But well, what about the argument when you have uh, power for that? Oh, you have to get reelected. It's still election yeah. process, yeah. but you have the people to have to be able to throw uh, the Okay, I like that. I like and that. Topo like warned of this. He's you know of yeah. this idea of a tyranny and this idea of you know, and, and some are saying you know with this with this manipulation of the press so all, all news that doesn't agree with me is fake news, mm -hmm. right? right? And I, I, I hearken to Stephen Miller maybe three months ago saying, and this will not be questioned when he was talking about Donald Trump and something that he was doing. It's mm -hmm. sort of like it, it harkened back to Tocqueville and his concern that we're talking about right now, which is sort of, okay, if you have all this power centralized in one person and no ability to elect, <clears throat> kick the bums out, re-elect, whatever... Where are you? You're 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 basically you're 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 within a monarchy is what what you have. Right. Well, so there is no perfect form of government, and this is you know the nature of, of political philosophy for thousands of years. Right. Um, just one other principle I want to put on the on the table here to about this discussion about should we have an elite, uh, the smart people who get that to have we more don't influence. Tell people about. <laughs> just okay. get rid of social media. We'll be fine. I really think that, and limit the amount of news people can get. Go China. Go Singapore. Benevolent dictatorship. Well. There is some, okay, there is something to be said for benevolent dictatorships at getting countries from poverty to middle class. 40 years, they go so, from the jungle to an yeah, apple store. It's no, that's amazing. Right. That's right. But those countries, like take Korea, you know, they start, so the, the, uh, the, the Che Bowls, the military dictatorship, that's a much faster way to get a country up than, say, a, a democracy in India. But once you reach middle class status, then every country you can't you can't really go much further with a dictatorship. Short ceiling. So, okay. Yeah. And I'm and okay. I'm even skeptical of that. Like like democracy. I, I don't know. Maybe you do know. And so I'm a jackass. But I when I say well, they, democracy is a very uh, inexact word. I tend to believe that if you have a real free enterprise system mm -hmm. and real rule of law and a government which roots out corruption, 
yeah. you would see faster uh, gro pro growth or prosperity than any other system. Yeah. People so, that's, for right. so that's the libertarian view. Yeah. And I have a lot of sympathy for that if you can really get efficient markets, if right. you really can get efficient markets. So I teach a business ethics class here at NYU Stern, and one of the consistent themes is if you have efficient markets, there are very few ethical problems. And as soon as you start getting you know, external costs passed on to others and information asymmetry, when you get inefficient markets, then you get really smart people able to exploit them and, and hurt others. But the one other thing I want to put on to finish up our conversation before is that there's lots of interesting research uh, from Dan Kahan at Yale and others that smart people are not better at finding the truth on politicized topics. They're just better at finding justifications for what they want to <laughs> believe. That's right, that's right, because it's so, intuition justification. Yeah. So, he does, so Dan Kahn <laughs> does these studies where, you know, if you give people like some problem, like they have to read a graph with right. some complicated data, and if it's just graph data, smart people or people have a lot of experience with math, they, they'd solve it better. But if you tell them, this is a graph of data on how gun control laws by state relate to crime later. Well, they'll then find the they'll find exactly. Yes, right. interesting, interesting. Yeah, interesting. They, so the you, they, they come to an answer that they so want. So just we're about to wrap it up. But yeah, the, yeah. The, the, the horrible thing in, in Las Vegas. Yes. And by the way, we're, we're supposed to open a uh, comedy cellar in Las Vegas. Mm. Anyway, um, uh, do you think that gun control would have, would, if you could pass, if you were emperor and you could pass any gun control law that you would like, do you mm -hmm. think you could stop mass shootings? No. No. But I often think the problem with this is when we create gun control after mass shootings, we are often implementing laws that won't stop most gun deaths. And I think mm -hmm. that's the problem with this knee-jerk reaction when it comes to gun control. Hey, we got to get a, get rid of AR-15s. Ninety percent of people kill themselves with handguns. Why? Right. Why are we not? Yeah, that's a great point. I mean, know. I think I think you can minimize the number of deaths. The mm -hmm. other day, if you say, okay, you, everybody can. We were sort of joking about this, but it, it's also this also serious. Everybody can only have a 22, right? Mm -hmm. So you can't you can't pop pop off a lot of rounds if you have a 22. But you can so drive maybe, a truck right into right. it. Well, that's exactly no, right. So still, it's sort look, of it's on the same day, volume yeah. issue. Yeah, on the same day as the Newtown shooting of all those kids, there was on the very same day, I believe it was, there was a mass a mass attack in China. In fact, a guy went into a preschool with a knife, stab attack, and yeah. he stabbed a bunch of kids, and like one died, I think. Yeah. So. Um, so it, you'll always have mentally unstable people. You'll always have right. vendettas. But, you know, if you have a gun, they kill more. And if you have a semi-automatic, they kill more. And if you have a machine gun, they kill more. So I used to run a gun control group in college. I'm a big fan of gun control. I do now see that it's more complicated than I used to think. But still, the headline in The Onion, the headline that The Onion runs after every one of these, I think it's something like... Um, the only nation on earth that has these mass atrocities says there's nothing it can do to stop yeah, these mass atrocities, that. something <laughs> yeah, like that. Right, right. Yeah. Which, so, we're, of course, we're not the only nation yeah. that's ever had them. I think no, it was we're in the Norway or somebody had a horrible journal yeah. reference to it today. Yeah, well, that's right. But they have like one every you know, 20 years, and we have one France. or two a year. Had the exact same yeah, thing happened okay. at Constant. 125 are, people yeah. were shot. These are the questions I really yeah. wanted. First of yeah. all, there's two questions. First of all, can you, in the same way with drugs or prohibition, can you actually keep the guns out of the hands of people who want are willing to do illegal activity yeah and then this this and part b of that is this 300 million guns already mm -hmm. out there and then the other question in my mind is that 50 years ago when there was almost no gun control why didn't we have these events then like we do now what's changed culturally mm -hmm. that with clearly guns are harder to get now yeah yet it's more and more common mm -hmm. um well, there are, so you have to look at why, why people do this. It's mostly, you know, individual men who do this. Um, and so there's, it's not that there's more mental in this, but it might be that we've deinstitutionalized people. It might be that high-powered guns are, uh, you know, guns um, are, are more readily available. Um, I don't really know why it's more common <clears throat> than, it, than it used to be. That uh, I don't I'm know. afraid but, that people are aping the charisma of terrorist events, and then each event they want to outdo the previous one and run as kind of, uh, yeah. uh, you know... Uh, I think that's really, but I think it's first, first important wait, to yeah. understand if it is more. I don't think it is more. I mean, shooting I deaths more. are trending yeah. down. They're trending no, down 50%. These, these mass murder. The mass, yeah, so mass murders are. may be happening more, but if overall shooting deaths are trending down 50% from, I think, the 70s... No. And that's because of, because of the leaded gas. We used to have so much leaded gas, we all had brain damage. But once we banned leaded gas, <laughs> seriously, once we banned leaded gas in 1980, 15 to 20 years later, crime rate plummeted. People Wait, thought it was really. Yeah. 
Yeah, look it up. Just look up uh, uh, Google the real criminal element. There's a great article by Kevin Drum in, in Mother Jones lays out all the graphs. Seriously, that's why, that's why crime plummeted in New York first, because New York banned lead a gas in 77. So crime starts plummeting in New York City just what before fact, Giuliani arrives. Just, just before so Giuliani got lucky. So Giuliani got very lucky. wasn't that's this hard right. no, right. If that lucky. was coming out of the mouth of anybody else on planet Earth, I would that's just, ridiculous. <laughs> so is the gas that makes you more aggressive? Lead, or, no, yeah. I saw a Star Trek is, like that. Yeah, no, lead is like the worst possible thing for developing brains. Is this correlational or is this factual? We know... So it is. It is a. It is a. What's it called? A quasi experiment because states and cities banned leaded gas at different times. You could and, see the drop yeah, off. Exactly. About 17 oh. years later, the crime rate plummets. Yeah. So it plummets in New York first in the early 90s, and then it plummets everywhere else three years later. Well, it's in Chicago. So, they still have leaded gas in Chicago. Well, no, so, <laughs> so yeah. Well, there they have just gangs. in that one area. Yeah, I mean, there's more to crime than leaded gas. Yeah, there yeah, they yeah. have a gang problem. But let me let me just end the gun control thing yeah, with this. Yeah. Maybe this is like a better way to end it. Um, it's a complicated issue, and. If we had a functional political culture, if we had a functional democracy where we could actually debate things, we could actually get together and solve it. And that's what they do in Scandinavia. I was there a year or two ago. Uh, in Scandinavia, when they have problems, they have, they have problems too, but they actually get together and solve them. They talk about them intelligently. We cannot do that See, but anymore. I, so we, we will that, never I, solve this problem. How do we do that? Just one quick takeaway. How do we do that? What is your goal? to getting us to a point where we will break away from tribe mm -hmm. and have these conversations? Um, it, I think we have to work on several of the components of it. We have to have a major congressional reform um, campaign. I don't know how it's going to happen. It'll probably take until one party can... I don't know how it'll happen. But we, there's a piece that we have to reform Congress. There's a piece we have to make some changes to the media. We have to change the way we're raising kids. Our kids are overprotected. They, they don't develop some of the skills of argument. Uh, that they used to have. So there's a whole bunch of pieces. All right, I'll end with a plug for my next book. I'm writing a book with Greg Lukianoff where we, uh, we try to actually analyze all of this. We try to say, what's going on? Why is everything going haywire? And uh, the title of the book is going to be the same as the title of our, uh, an Atlantic article we wrote, which is The Coddling of the American Mind. The subtitle is How Good Ideas, I'm sorry, How Good Intentions and Bad Ideas Are Leading a Generation to Failure. And we go through all the things that are happening so that young people today are just not as prepared for life in a rough-and-tumble democracy as, say, our parents were. It's been getting worse ever since. And yet they're more informed, theoretically, because of social media, but it's not helping. But information, yeah, information right. is not that valuable. And the, yep. and and the truth right. of it and the veracity of it, right. All right, well, we got to wrap it up. I, I, just, I just really believe that if anybody reads your book and internalizes the, the lessons in that book, they will end up a little bit better uh, in terms of being able to monitor their own thought and weed out their own biases than if they hadn't read it. So I, I think that's why I think the book is so important. And uh, you, you haven't read it, but you, you really need to. It really... I will read it. I think, as I said again, I think about it all the time, and it really changed my life, that book. That's why I, I keep The it. Righteous Mind, available yeah. in bookstores near you. I Can I have one of those? I recommended it to you too, right, Mike? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I, I recommend it all over town. Okay. Jonathan, thank you very, thank you, very gentlemen. much. A pleasure. Thank you, man. Good night, everybody. Thank <laughs> you.